Hello everybody, and welcome back to Bond by Numbers. Today we'll be looking down the literary gun barrel once more as our adventure through John Gardner's seventh James Bond continuation novel, Scorpius, takes us by the hand. Yeah. So here we are, my name is Scott Powell, and as always I'm joined by my reader in Bond across the pond, Joshua Taylor. Hello. Now, Josh, this is, of course, we've mentioned before, the Bond by Numbers last season. After our collection of episodes this year, we will not be doing any more. So I would say probably in a year's time, we'll have finished our entire Bond by Numbers project, which you remember just began as a film retrospective and it kind of grew legs and arms after that. But uh, we've decided to bring it to an end. And part of what we want to do this year is get a couple of these John Gardner books in. We may continue the show as a book review, a Bond book review uh, serial, but there will be no more Bond by Numbers episodes. And Jeff's not with us today, but uh, the thought of that is is kind of sad. You know, it's kind of sad. It it is. Because we've had a fantastic set, and we still have some more great episodes ahead, but we've had a fantastic set of seasons. This is our fifth now. But at the same time, I feel like we have done what we wanted to do and more besides and we've left a nice little and it is little unintended but a nice little (laughs) legacy for uh, our listeners and uh, and for bond fans and more importantly for ourselves right something that we can look back on and and chuckle about and uh, it's been it's been fun so it has my my spirit moving forward is to make every episode count every chat worthwhile and uh Uh, With that in mind, thank you, everybody, for giving us your time. We hope you're enjoying what we're doing here on the show. Yes, it's coming to an end in a wee while, but uh, we've still got some great content set up for the season ahead. And, uh, yeah, if you're reading these books with us, hey, I I feel for you. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So, Josh, shall we just jump straight into it then? This is uh, is Gardner's seventh novel, and we've got uh, our angles all ready to go. As, as always, we have a little summary that I put together. It's about 15 minutes. So if you guys at home know the story and you're not interested in listening to the strokes of the plot, then just skip ahead 15 minutes and catch us on the other side for our angle, where Josh will explain to us what and how we score these books. All right, Scorpius, begin. I don't know whether to make a hissing sound or a scorpion sound. I don't know what a scorpion does. Is that, is that, what they that do? little, like, like a, like a rattle kind of sound? Or is that a rattlesnake? Uh, right. I'm not sure. I never I'm just thinking of Madonna's Madonna's castanets in the start of her. That's, da, 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 da. that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> right. Okay. Dun, 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 dun. right. Anyway. Enjoy well, the summer. Well, <laughs> yeah. Gardner's seventh Bond novel begins with a cold open, like several before thus. The death of Emma Dupre, a young woman escaping pursuers. She drowns at night near the docks along the Thames, but not before Gardner shows us that she was trying to get in touch with James Bond. As for Bond, well, he's in a training exercise with the SAS in Hereford. He's called back to London after his number was found on Emma Dupre's body, and that information got back to M. MI6 is getting audited at the moment, and the nation prepares for a general election, so M is pretty stressed out. He worries about his operational budget and the state of the nation as these unfamiliar suits hang around the place doing data checks and interviews. At first, Bond, in Hereford, thinks that being called back to London is a bit of a joke, but... Pearlman, Sergeant Pearlman, wakes him on the way back from his ride because they're being followed. They dodge their pursuers by using side roads and known routes, and by the time Bond reaches London and M, he knows that something's going on. With M and Chief Superintendent Bailey from Special Branch, Bond learns more about the religious cult that Emma Dupre was part of, known as the Meek Ones, and its leader, Father Valentine, who's heavily suspected of being Vladimir Scorpius, a well-known arms dealer. MI5 and Special Branch want to know more about this man. Given his background in arms dealing and funding terrorism, 
MI5 is particularly concerned about the revolutionary potential of the meek ones. They also discuss the credit card that Emma had in her possession when she was found. Avant Carte is Scorpius's legitimate credit card company, but there's something fishy about its technology that they can't yet put their fingers on. Lord Shrivenham, one of the auditors in MI6, has a daughter who is also wrapped up in the cult and gives more information about their local commune at Manderson Hall, Berkshire. During the chat, Lord Shrivenham gets a call that his daughter has returned home, but that she's in an awful state, delirious, drugged to within an inch of her life, but home. So things are moving pretty quick here in this novel. Bond goes to check in on the Shrivenham house and finds Trilby Shrivenham, all drugged out of her mind and blethering like a religious convert. It's an exorcist-esque scene, and quite easy for Bond to see through. She's being heavily brainwashed. He calls M, who agrees that this is a case for James Maloney, a Rolodex psychiatrist for the service who has featured in three previous Bond adventures, Dr. No, You Only Live Twice, and The Man with the Golden Gun. More pages about Scorpius are shared as and after Bond reads the files prepared for him by the Americans. After the death of his wife, it seems that Scorpius disappeared and rebranded himself as Father Valentine. Only similarities are his unmistakable ears and his trend-setting wristwatch. We've rarely seen M so worked up and emboldened personally. Q Branch was used to investigate the credit cards, which are smart cards, M sends Bond to start the search for Scorpius by checking out the London office of his avant-carte company. Bond appreciates, while there, the elevator music, the second time in as many books we've seen him do that, and Gardner shows himself as a keen jazz fan. Bond then gets lucky when he meets the girl working at the desk. No, not in that way, at least not yet. Her name is Harriet Horner, and she's the only one on shift and is quite happy to spill the beans over her concerns and suspicions of the company. They're quickly apprehended, though, by Mr. Hathaway, supposedly Harriet's boss, and his two thugs. Hathaway claims to know all about Harriet and also about Bond. They don't move too far before Bond manages to disarm them and gain advantage. Harriet then confesses to Bond that she's actually an undercover investigator for the IRS. Back again with M., Bond learns more about Harriet's cover through the CIA liaison officer, David Wolkowski. Perlman, meanwhile, Sergeant Perlman, who had been sent down to Manderson Hall to have a recce, reports that the Meek Ones have ditched the location for some new secret headquarters. M sends Bond to the clinic to check in on Trilby and to see if he can't get something out of her. While there, Maloney confirms 007's suspicions that she's been drugged up to the max and still not really making much sense. Bond travels south of the city for Maloney's clinic where, using a Walkman, he records Trilby's blethering words as he interviews her. Funny, Fleming describes Bond as a blunt instrument, but here we see him as an interrogator. He's also a part exorcist, too, as he tries to coax Trilby away from the demon hell talk. Well, back in London, the safe house at which Harriet was being protected gets infiltrated by the Meek Ones, and in the melee, Harriet shoots and kills one of the assailants. Another is taken prisoner. He's hurt and also transferred to Dr. Maloney on M's orders. Bond is permitted to interrogate him for five minutes and meets with similar blather to what he faced with Trilby. Having encountered the vernacular earlier, though, Bond is prepared for this chat and gets the young man talking about King Arthur and the meek inheriting the earth and what not. It all sounds prophetic, gloomy, and a little bit naff, but the silliness escapes when Bond leaves the room and discovers that Lord Mills, everyone's favourite objective political figure, had been assassinated in Glastonbury, home of the legendary Avalon, with links to the Round Table, its knights, and, of course, King Arthur. A suicide bomber had walked right up to the retired statesman and, well, brought forth fire. The word was being made flesh right before Bond's very eyes, and while he and M reviewed the footage of the assassination later, his boss forcefully announced his desire for a win in stopping these monsters. Not only would it help put down Scorpius and his plan of multiple attacks for good, it would also go a long way in securing future fundings at this time of financial uncertainty during the audit. 
Gardner offers us a few pages of interagency bloat here that show off his understanding of things. The SAS and the CIA and the IRS are all working together on this one. Following a brief chat with the Prime Minister, M turns to Bond with tired eyes and tells his agent to go out and get him. He and his nest of spiders. Anticipating more attacks, M reminds Bond that this is a desperate assignment and that he may ask for any assistance. Go out and find the devils, he says. Though he remains uncertain about Perlman and Horner, Bond trusts his instincts and asks M for them to join him. We're then treated to a cursory, token scene of Bond eating breakfast prepared by his housekeeper May before heading off to collect Harriet at the safe house. Bond admires the brands that hang in her cupboard for a few minutes and then takes she and Perlman down to the clinic one more time. Upon arrival, Bond is surprised to learn that Trilby has family visiting, two uncles and a brother, but leaves it for the moment to go and interrogate the prisoner. His true name is Ahmed El-Kadar, but his name in death is Joseph. He tells Bond through religious code that the female serpent who came to kill our father is meant to die and will be a target. He also confesses that Father Valentine has agents of death like him scattered all about, just waiting for the moment when they will release their own vengeance, efforts that will combine to form massive devastation. After a chat with Sir James Maloney, Bond's instincts kick in and remind him that Trilby's brother died five years earlier. He rushes to her then and finds that whoever impersonated the so-called visitor also wiped out the duty staff in a silencer-encouraged massacre. To make matters worse, they took Harriet. With his earlier suspicions now confirmed of an inside figure tracing his every movement, Bond requests permission to use Scatter, the service's safest and most secretive of safe houses. Once granted, Bond descends upon a leafy and unsuspecting part of the city, where Mrs. Findlay cordially greets Bond and instructs him on the essentials before disappearing into the night like the professional ghost that she is. Meanwhile, another attack has been unleashed by the meek ones, this time on a Labour candidate and former Labour Prime Minister. Upon reviewing the gruesome video footage of this attack, Bond spots Vladimir Scorpius driving away from the scene with Harriet Horner captive in the back seat. The whole event is used by Gardner to ramp up the stakes of the current operation, codename Harvester, as we near the midway point of the novel. It also works to remind all the characters that bodies will continue to pile up until Scorpius and his radicalized terrorists are located. M and Cute both arrive at Scatter and equip Bond into the wee hours. The former tells Bond that they've captured six of the terrorists now and that Perlman, who had been tasked with scouring Manderson Hall for clues, completely missed a weapons stash on the property. The latter gives 007 the insider scoop on smart cards, now that her department has done the number on Emma Dupre's avant card. It turns out that Scorpius's credit cards enable users to steal from accounts with minimal ease and stash away the spoils in other hidden slush funds or accounts. Financing governments, militias, or individual oligarchs has never been simpler. So not only has Scorpius cornered the market in weapons dealing and evangelical brainwash, he's also a tech whiz, the likes of which Silicon Valley today would be most envious. Perlman then arrives while Bond is sleeping, having infiltrated the safe house. He holds Bond to gunpoint and insists that Bond listen to him. The story he shares explains the mishap with the weapons at Manderson and much more. He confesses that he's been playing both sides because his daughter, Ruth, is one of Father Valentine's converted sheep and has been targeted for her own greatness in the afterlife. Perlman has convinced Valentine that he is legit, and if he didn't give Harriet over, then his cover would have been blown. He opens up to Bond about his younger life and his would-be wife who died in childbirth and of how important Ruth is to him. Essentially, Perlman wants Bond to be his ally in recovering his daughter before it's too late. Well, this is, of course, coincidence plus. But we've suspended our disbelief before with Gardner and Fleming and the films, so it's nothing new. Bond is keen to trust Perlman, remember, and he is reassured once Perlman returns his gun to him. Whatever good faith he issued this SAS agent at the start, 
seems to be returning serendipitous dividends. He agrees to play hostage while Perlman delivers him to Scorpius until opportunity avails itself for them to partner up. The idea is to execute a wooden horse op on the compound. Bond grabs one of Cute's prepared briefcases from Scatter, as well as his alter ego documentation, and lets M know what's going on in a coded conversation. M will likely share the pertinent details with CIA and MI5, given the joint nature of the operation. Perlman and Bond are soon on their way to North Carolina, Hilton Head Island to be exact, a mecca for golfers and also, it would seem, for terrorist-funding, credit-card-making, government-hating, charlatan, evangelical cult leaders. Bond notices Wolkowski on the plane and suspects that either A, he is the insider rat who has been siphoning info to Scorpius all this time, or B, and more hopefully, that the CIA are acting on information from M. Either way, he and Perlman have their own plot to worry about. They review the simple plan together before landing. Bond promises to find Ruth, and Perlman promises to get Bond out. Well, a, chi- a, a trio of Charles Atlas hunks collect them at the airport and drive Bond to Scorpius's headquarters, Ten Pines Plantation. On the way, they pass strip malls, golf courses, resort hotels, and swathes of grassy beachheads. Eventually, they arrive at Ten Pines, a massive two-storied structure reminiscent of a circular hotel, but with the addition of an octagonal tower in the middle. The sound of Harriet's screaming is heard from afar when Scorpius welcomes Bond inside, something that the host refers to as a little night music. Well, the scene isn't dissimilar to Jonathan Harker arriving at Dracula's castle to the bane of the wolves. My guess is Gardner is going for that. Well, Bond is ushered into the great prayer hall next, where Father Valentine leads the congregation through a series of ritual exchanges. Harriet, due to be converted, is anchored to a chair and still screaming steadily. Valentine reveals another success for their cause, thanks to a recent attack by an acolyte named Philip. The service breaks up, and Bond has walked back to the guest suite, where he finds his luggage and Q's briefcase returned to him safely. After a shower, Harriet joins him and reveals that Scorpius's plan is to impose marriage between herself and Bond, so that he can properly convert them to his cause. His ego is such that he believes anyone, anyone will subdue to his dogma. Well, Bond is soon called for and meets Scorpius at a meeting, wherein he is shown a wall-sized map of the world with interactive, live-action points representing each of his enlightened suicide soldiers and their targets. So confident is Scorpius that Bond will never leave the plantation that he willingly shares this with Bond and shows him the workings of the terror machine, so to speak. In addition to weaponizing devotees, Scorpius reveals that he also uses deep hypnosis on the faithful, along with a cocktail of drugs to keep them dedicated. Like Blofeld in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Father Valentine is programming his flock for attack by purified narcotic and psychotic means. Over dinner, Bond notices that Scorpius's newest wife, Trilby Shivenham, doesn't seem to be fully committed. He senses a resistance and a tension that betrays her words. Scorpius reveals that the reason she was so important to target is because her father, Lord Shrivenham, would not use his influence to help finance his daughter's wacky boyfriend. Having refused him money, Scorpius decided to get back on Shrivenham by ruining his daughter. Bond also asks about the compound's security and how Scorpius can be so confident about his chances of escape. Well, he's told that the Ten Pines is guarded from the front, and the only way out is through the back onto a marshland before the beach, which is specially filled with aggressive cottonmouths, or water moccasins, among the most poisonous snakes in the world. Before dinner is over, Scorpius delivers up the craziest serving of all. As Harriet hinted at earlier, he intends for Bond to marry her, out of respect for her late father. You see, Scorpius is secretly Harriet's godfather, and he promised to look out for her. He owed her dad a debt of honor and wants to see it fulfilled. That's why he got her a job at avant-garde and kept her close. How was he to know that she'd turn out undercover for the IRS? Well, 
To make a long story a little shorter, Bond agrees to marry Harriet to placate Scorpius and to have the best chances of acquiring all the target information. Gardner writes, quote, Nothing else made sense in Scorpius's nightmare world, end quote. But you know, at this point of the story, enough wild coincidence has rolled onto the page that readers can't really be sure where they stand either. What's next? Bond saving the President of the United States? Huh. Well, the ceremony is predictably weird, and obviously a sham, legally speaking, but it takes up about five pages of awkward text, and Gardner is even bold enough to plug a Tracy reference in there. Bond and Harriet are then sent off amid jeers and hurrahs to fire up the mattress for a couple of nights, and this newlywed role isn't really a tough one for Bond to play along with, consenting beautiful woman, imprisoned lovemaking, luxury, accommodations. But outside, the real world is still waiting on him to put an end to the terror before more targets light up the map and the media. Eventually, Bond decides that the time is right, and he plans to escape the compound and head for the sea with the help of Cute's explosive kit, setting off signals necessary to attract the CIA and his other allies. Well, he and Harriet exit through the back, but before reaching the snaky marshland, they find themselves in a trap. The sliding door from their room to the outside actually opened up to a false wall, like a mirrored glass box, and locked them in. Hundreds of scorpions then start coming in through concealed grates on the floor and the ceiling. Three shots from his browning did the job, though, and the glass burst enough for them to, to crawl out and on towards the marshes. Bond times and hurls the plastic explosives to clear a path through the reptilian threat and makes a beeline for the beach, dragging Harriet behind him. When they hit the ocean, Bond keeps swimming and shouting encouragement to Harriet, but by the time David Wolkowski and the CIA inflatable pull up to rescue him, coincidence number five, she's already dead. The deadly cottonmouths had just enough access to her lower half to impact venomous bites. And like that, Bond's second wife dies. Bond joins in the assault of Ten Pines and chases down Scorpius himself, eventually forcing him out across the swamps to taste a bit of his own slithering hemorrhagic medicine. It's all a bit clown-like, really. Truth be told, shame that the stakes are so high. And they really are, because while Scorpius is being dealt with, his faithful are still in action. And it's pretty obvious from the map and the meek one's chatter that the British Prime Minister is the next target. And guess what? She's on her way to meet with the President of the United States for a White House summit. Now, why any politicians would be risking their hides while suicide bombers were running amok and clearly targeting them on public stages in lead-up to a British election, I mean, that's anybody's guess. But lucky for us, 007 is free again to tie up those loose ends. No ball and chain anymore. And besides, who else could save Thatcher and Reagan from assassination? The Secret Service? No chance. As Gardner clearly explains, they'd rather preserve their arrogant pride than heed the intelligence reports of foreign and domestic nations. Well, and as if that wasn't enough, Perlman reconnects with Bond and says that he can't find his daughter. Any guesses? Yep, that's right. She is the chosen suicide bomber for the White House hit. Suffice it to say that Bond, Perlman, and Wolkowski move through Andrews Air Force Base very quickly after, and on to the White House property, just in time to save the day. Bond, of course, takes the shot, as Ruth, disguised as a press photographer, falls down to her death, just before she's able to unleash fiery hell on the Prime Minister and secure herself a place in Scorpius's sick afterlife. And there next to her, the man who helped her, and had his eye on Bond the whole time, was none other than Chief Superintendent Bailey, Scorpius's inside man. And so, the story ends. The final enemy is put down, and all the meek ones are rounded up and reverse brainwashed. It'll be a busy week at the clinic for Dr. James Moliny, that's for sure. Oh, and as for Trilby Shrivenham, well, wouldn't you know that she's been asking for Bond, and M thinks a wee hookup is just what he's needing. Bond, for once refrains from the flesh and accepts just a couple of days off before returning to work. Wow, in a book of surprise coincidences and unbelievable ironies, Bond saying no to sex may be the greatest one of all.
All right. Well, that was definitely a summary. Uh, I think you got all the fine points there. And uh, yeah, I, I went on a wee bit with that one. I, I had uh, I'd shrunk a previous one to about 10 minutes, but I got myself thinking. I started working on this one and I, I just I just kept going. So these things sometimes find their own voice, their own style. You know, once you start tapping away and you start writing it out, it, it, it kind of gets its own flow. Some of them you can shrink, some of them you can extend. I like extending them, though, because the way I look at it, you know, if I'm going to listen back to these episodes you know, when Bond by Numbers is over and after I've read all these books, I'm going to be happy to have a longer summary that reminds me of exactly what the story was about instead of just, oh, Bond follows a charlatan priest to America and solves a problem. You know what I mean? Like for posterity's sake, you know, if we're going to go back on these episodes and enjoy them in any capacity or get anything from them, I figure a longer summary will at least remind our older selves of what we read, you know? Reminding us of, of what we endured, the trials well, and tribulations. Let, let's see. Let's see. We haven't loved all of these, right? We haven't loved all of these Gardner stories, but let, let's see what our discussion uh, dredges up. Was this an endurance or was it a pleasure? Was it something in between? Mm. Josh, explain to our good friends about our angles. All right. Angle is an acronym and A is for allies and adversaries. N is for narrative. G is for girl, as in the Bond woman, so to speak, that Mm -hmm. quota that you have to fill for every James Bond novel story. And then we have L for the locations, locale, I guess you could say, which is is a very important attribute to a James Bond novel. And finally, uh, E for equipment. So the gadgets. And we give each of these components a mark out of five, which gives us a... uh, an index of 25 with which we can score the episode. So yeah, let's get into it then, Josh. Scorpius is probably Gardner's biggest book thus far in terms of size. Uh, yes. It's a good 50 or 60, oh no, it's about 35 or 40 pages more than any of the previous books. So how do we feel about it in terms of allies and adversaries? Break it down for us, my friend. This was probably the category I rated highest for... Okay for this novel. Uh, It utilized a vast array of characters. Uh, Each contributed to the narrative in their own way. I found that like it was almost Dickensian and how many interagencies we had going, how many villains we had going, how many red herrings we had going, all working within the confines of the plot. I found that everything there, it felt like a very peppered, like the world was peppered with characters, good and bad throughout this novel. And I found that it may, it, it was really helped with the world building of John Gardner's post Fleming bond. And uh, yeah. I think that's, that's what I pulled from this book the most. Uh, let's look at, and particularly and how some characters kind of shined more than usual. One character I found I really enjoyed in this book compared to other appearances in John Gardner's uh, work so far is M. Uh, mm. He had more presence and agency in this book. And as the crisis with the meek ones escalated, the more afraid his composure came, uh, became Interesting. like it was, it was subtle, but it was there. And so like when he tells Bond, you know, to end Scorpius, get rid of him, do it. Mm-hmm. He's not joking mm-hmm. around. He's outraged and, it, and he's vulnerable politically, personally in that situation. And openly he's trusting Bond to get it done. So I really like th- how M in particular was portrayed in this book. Uh, Money Penny, she's just offering refreshment and comfort to people outside M's office. That's all. And I mean, <laughs> M's, M's secretarial work. That's yeah, all. Yeah. Um, I'll save the rest of the girls for the girls category. Um, we got well, cute, uh, cute is doing what cute does. And she, she's in the background yeah, with, uh, true. you know, a bit of help, but there's nothing. She comes to the safe house and she gives, uh, a good chat, you know, she and M share some serious time with Bond there when they get to the safe house. But aside from that, she's not really a factor physically, sexually or otherwise, right? No, just a reminder, because I think there's a whole there's a whole line about how uh, Bond is basically, I mean, it's a reminder of a past, you know, uh, a past fling with her and stuff like that in, in the writing, if I recall. Mm-hmm. The whole thing, the whole thing about you know Bond watching her walk away across the square from like scat from the scatter house or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I almost said like scat house. Sorry, uh, scatter. Uh, <laughs> just yeah. Let's just get past that term. Uh, we have you know characters like SAS Sergeant Pearlie Perlman, 
uh, starts out as kind of a bodyguard helper for Bond, and then he's actually like kind of the, the mole, but it's a mole done in a different way than we've seen before in the Gardner novels. So I kind of appreciated that a little bit. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Let, let's not rush over that because Perlman no, is, he is a mole. I think you're right. And I also think you're right to say in the previous ones, the mole has been like, oh, the big informant or the big bad. I mean, in this story, that's actually um, Superintendent Bailey, isn't it? That's yes. the, the big, the big mole. But Perlman is a mole within a mole. Uh, no, wait, not a mole. <laughs> not a mole. He's yeah. a, he's a, he's a double mole, isn't he really? Yeah, he is. I was kind of sus of Bailey uh, midway through because I was thinking mm-hmm. he was the only other person. Once we have the Perlman reveal, reveal that he's actually yeah. uh, a mole for Scorpius. But what he's doing, though, is that he's working against Scorpius secretly because he mm-hmm. just wants to get his daughter out of there. Right. So that's and that's why, you know, they have that alliance where Bond is going to basically be offered to Scorpius on a silver platter while Pearly is going to do something or help let Bond, you know, work his magic to get them out of there. Um, which doesn't really ultimately to, happen yeah. in the way that we that I, that I assumed it would. Um, yeah. But I still like Pearlie's character. Like, I think he could have probably had a couple of more pages of development or something on there, and particularly more of a presence in the end. I found, like, once we got to, like, Hilton Head, Perlman kind of disappears, and we only see these, and which makes sense, because we're only seeing things through, Bond, through Bond's perspective when he meets Scorpius and goes to the dinner and stuff like that. Perlman's just kind of like in the background, right? And you don't really That's right. get yeah. into him. Yeah. So there's no real way. It'd be tricky for for Perlman to be involved in what was happening with Bond and Harriet, like in the hotel room. And then, yeah. you know, their, yeah. and, their, and their escape. Like maybe he could have sent a message to Perlman somehow, but I don't know. Uh, but overall, like I thought Perlman was a really good red herring. It was refreshing to see a mole, but a, a double mole which is very 24. So I kind of appreciated that a bit. Um, so I did like that. Uh, Bailey. Yeah. He's like the right, he was like who, you know, by the end of it, but sure. makes sense. He was in there. Yeah. Uh, Gardner planted him early. I get it. That's fine. And then because Wolkowski ended up being the red herring because I feel like Wolkowski yeah. was set up yeah. to be like a lot of other CIA honchos that Gardner's introduced before. I forget their names now, but because they were kind of like, you know, caricatures in a way when, I, when they were portrayed in my opinion the cia turncoat and wolkowski wasn't that in the end he was actually a good guy right so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. good job there uh, we have guys like sir james moloney returning from like the fleming novels putting a little nostalgia back in that's right yeah yeah Maloney. Uh, he does yeah he's he's been in three you know hasn't he? he's been dr no he's been in yep. the he's been dr no uh the man with the golden gun after bond's amnesia i remember he was in that one What's the other one he was in? He was in another one. Was it from Russia with Love? Was it Man with the Golden Gun? Man with the Golden Gun, yes. You Only Live Twice? No. Man with the Golden Gun, Dr. No, for Maybe. sure. And I can't recall. Our listeners, uh, let us know in the comments yeah, on, uh, on our, in, on our Instagram. In another one, anyway. Which, yeah. which other one uh, Maloney appeared in. Uh, then we have, for example, uh, Lord Shrivenham. They have all these characters in the narrative that are there to like, you know, to, to make the world feel real. Like we understand Trilby is, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. a personage because of oh, her sorry, father. Sorry. I just remembered. Sorry to interrupt you. I'm sorry, buddy. It's you only no live worries. twice. You only live twice because after Tracy's death, uh, doesn't M get him in to kind of check on bond and sort of do stuff like that at the beginning You're, of you only live twice. Yeah. You could be on something there. Yeah. I don't yeah, recall, doc, but Dr. No, after the tetratodoxin poisoning, that's one thing for sure. Yeah. And then it's, the man with the golden gun post brainwash, and I'm pretty sure the other one is you only live twice. Yeah, follow me, Tracy's death. But yeah, if uh, anyone listening knows for sure if that's correct or not, let us know. Uh, check us out and let us know. Right, sorry, buddy, I interrupted you. And then we have, I guess, I guess she's not really considered a Bond woman per se because she, there was any romantic interest with her. Uh, Miss Madeline Finley. I thought she was a pretty cool character. I wanted, I wanted mm. to learn more about this spinster badass because yeah. obviously, like, yeah. she's kind of like this. I don't know this Miss McGonagall type, you know, who's running the safe house, and uh, it doesn't seem like she's very fond of Bond and vice versa. And she just goes and leads Bond to his devices and, and comes. And, and then when she comes back, she'll be pissed off that he took the clothes yeah. and all this sort of. Well, stuff. I don't know. I mean, she's yeah. she's a consummate professional. She's described by Gardner mm-hmm. like a spook, right? And yeah, she she just travels like the true agent she is. She doesn't give Bond the time of day beyond yeah. here's what you need to know. And there is that 
moment of I think Bond respects her in that moment. Oh, when, he does. When he's at Scatter, yeah. But I don't know how he feels about her beyond um, beyond her function as an agent. But yeah, he certainly appreciates the way she holds the fort down. She's kind of like yeah, she's kind of like almost like a governess figure in a way, mm. you know, like yeah, yeah, doesn't take shit from the from from the children yeah. from her charges. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't so, think yeah, you're so, right. I, I I think that's just to circle back. I think you're right when you say this is Gardner's world building really coming to the fore because we do get these working parts which actually work. They're not just name dropped in there. You see them in 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 part, and you can believe. Like I'm going to use that silly expression, the Scooby Gang, right? Like you can see it here the way the way you kind of get it, Inspector with M and with Money Penny and Q, like and Bond meeting at the um, Hildebrand office or whatever it is, Inspector. Here you get it, they meet at Scatter, right? And and that's believable. Yes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So it's good good allies and, and, adver- and adversaries. Or I guess we haven't talked about the adversary yet, have we? No, the adversaries. So I guess we'll talk about Scorpius. Um, I found so, so far of all of Gardner's adversaries that he's you know villains that he's given us i think scorpius is the most intriguing and best written one mm. in my opinion okay cool right uh like i wanted to learn more about him and his background but gardner gives a nice like background to him just like in, in the dossiers that bond reads and whatnot but at the same time uh i also just liked how he wrote him on the page like this is a very charming villain and he and gardner does that very well as portrays the villain but there was just a little bit of i can't quite put my finger on it but there was just something about gardner feeling that he knew about the character that he was writing because i think he was because this is the 80s late 80s right so jonestown has happened and mm-hmm. so he has like i think gardner must have somehow looked into cult leaders and this is before, like, David Koresh and Quinan and, yeah, and all the that sort of Davidians. stuff, right? Yeah, you're right. It is. It is. So he, he's definitely playing on that. The ingredients of the 1980s are blended in here. you got the satanic panic, that fraud evangelicalism, which comes into um, License to Kill, of course, cult leaders, as you say. But we've also got microchips and banking schemes and kind of white-collar corruption. A lot of... 1980s ingredients are blended up in this story. It is very much of its time. But uh, Scorpius, as an extension of the charlatan religious guy or the or, or the the cult leader, you know, if you want to go there, then I I don't know. Like I just kind of felt like okay, so Scorpius starts his life as a weapons dealer a terrorist fundraiser and then he disappears on a yacht everybody knows he's got this yacht but nobody knows where he is his wife dies he becomes a recluse he re-enters society as father valentine and he's still doing all the other things plus he he seems to really believe in the shit he's spouting as well that's the other thing yeah he's this doesn't just seem like a front for him he's into it you know or is yet, he, am I, I wrong in that? Am I wrong in that? that? That's what I'm thinking is because like, that's the one thing about the Scorpius thing that I just feel that like just doesn't quite hit the mark, even though like there was a lot of, a lot of very um, interesting, not interesting. There was a lot of r- original uh, ideas here with Scorpius compared to his other villains. I liked the idea where I bought into it the majority of the time that this guy was this person. He was like this arms dealer who's seen all this shit in the world possible and knows about, you know, the depravity of humankind and then goes converts to like some religion he creates for himself essentially some worldview that in his own arrogance he creates and he actually buys into his product that's what i was getting the feeling of because they had the whole thing about why he had the wedding for harriet and bond is because he felt that before he does something he's going to exact that the dark side of his personality upon them like the vengeance he's going to exact on them afterwards he felt that religiously or morally that he should give them some happiness beforehand or something. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, mm-hmm. but then there's when that, that's the scene where like he's begging for his life and, and bond makes him take his perp walk into the uh, swamp there. I yeah. just kind of, I, I just kind of felt like he returned back to the person he was before. Like he regressed back to that person. And I didn't quite buy that. I kind of felt like he should have just like, well, I, I felt like he should have been more of a fanatic in the end as opposed to what he was portrayed earlier when I saw him as that true fanatic. You want to think of like, you know, like the snake oil salesman, religious uh, televangelist type, you know, and that's kind of like how they were portraying him. But 
I felt that like in the end, he reverted back to his older self. And I just didn't quite buy that reversion. I, I felt that, like he should have still stayed. He should have still stayed in that mode and went gladly to his end in service of that belief that he has, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I, but in the end, are all these people, do they, are they actually fanatics? These people in real life who, who, who do these things like these, like these uh, snake oil salesmen, televangelists or what have you, like these people who run like these cults, for example, um, do they actually believe in the BS that they're spouting or do they, or are they secretly very cynical and using this as forms of manipulation? I found that like Gardner couldn't quite decide on, on that. Mm-hmm. Fair point. One of the things that, I mean, okay, I agree with what you're saying about Scorpius. I like him. He's interesting to follow. I wish we got more of that conviction in his character that would have made him more consistent in terms of his beliefs and his project, you know. But I'm disappointed in the lack of henchmen. There's no one here. Nobody here as a hench as a henchman. Hathaway and Bob. Yeah, come on, right? They get they get done so quick in one scene. Scorpius doesn't seem to have he's got a bunch of like converts that do work for him and terrorists outside that do work but there there doesn't seem to be any interesting henchmen and i think in terms of the bond formula uh gardner fleming who uh, you know sherwood whoever is writing the lack of the lack of a character or against against which we can cheer is um against whom we can cheer i think that's a, a weakness of this story and i don't know if gardner's plot outline was too big and he's like well to fit a a character in is just going to be like shoehorning something in there like he's done that before mm-hmm. i don't see I why see he would have cared but i, I, I see it saying. as a weakness yeah yeah i see what you're saying i mean in previous gardener stories the henchmen's at least were a bit more not as interesting as the fleming henchmen obviously but they did have a certain je ne sais quoi about them that kind of made, made them feel like a bond henchman in some sense right but in this particular story, I feel that that was a deliberate choice on Gardner, be- mm-hmm. of Gardner, because okay. I feel that he wanted to go into the suicide bombing, which at the time wasn't really, I mean, in the 80s, I think we had the most famous suicide bombing in the 80s, I believe, was the assassination of Indira Gandhi, if I'm not mistaken. That was a well, it depends suicide on, bombing. It depends on how you define that, because also, we also yeah. have the, the Lockerbie bombing. But that wasn't, a, that, that wasn't a suicide bombing, though. That was just a bombing, right? Like, they, they it was put a terrorist a act. Oh, you mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I see what you mean. You mean, yeah, actual suicide bomber. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Actual yeah, suicide yeah. bombing. And yeah. this is something that would, of course, be much prevalent much later, you know, when the, you know, once the, the conflict with the Middle East and uh, uh, Muslim fund- fundamentalism, ex- extreme fundamentalism, sorry, you know, being, 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 being a conflict in, in, in later, you know, years after this book was written, obviously. But it's interesting that he was, you know, that he was using like, um, religion, like Christian, like a, a, a hodgepodge of like Abrahamic religions, I, I suppose you could say that that he was using because there really wasn't mm-hmm. any. I mean, there was elements of like Buddhism with like the reincarnation aspect of it, maybe, but not not really. It seems he was pulling from a whole bunch of different things, like his own kind of weird Scientology almost. But yeah, yeah, I like, I don't know. Like, I just felt that Gardner wanted to portray. Uh, a different type Him of villain. Him as a singular with, entity, not with, not connected to any, not having any one confident or something. Like a hive okay. mind, like a hive mind almost okay. in yeah. a way. Okay. You know what I mean? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I just, I, just the, I just thought that that was what he was trying to mm-hmm. do in this. And it was a bit okay. more, it was refreshing for me compared to what we've seen before cool. following those usual right. tropes. So I kind of appreciated that. So that's kind of why I have this category up high because I just loved all the characters that peopled this story and made it come alive for me um, that made the narrative made me enjoy the story more than i would have if these if they weren't as like if if it wasn't as uh colorful in terms of its characters Mm. and that's my take on it anyways all right well like i can't disagree with your take on the characters themselves i i have problem with so many characters but that that's more of a narrative point than it is an allies and Mm. adversaries point i do find that there's a bit too many cooks in the kitchen here but in terms of how they're written and their functions uh, i mean on the page they're yeah i mean i think it is a strong one for allies and adversaries i i went for a four overall what did you go for did i you speaking i went for okay okay cool so that's my highest mark i've given this uh okay uh, that that i've given this angle so (laughs) we'll we'll see what comes from the rest of it (laughs) 
Well, in terms of narrative, Josh, uh, there is a lot of setup to this novel. You mentioned that the character of M is really in, is really well sketched out because of the audit that's going on and the stress he's under for his budgets and whatnot. This becomes an additional, perhaps, principal stress in his life of the book. He is interesting in the story, but there's a lot of it in terms of setup. Like that's part of the setup. We we are yeah. one hundred we're hundred and sixty pages before James Bond heads away from the United Kingdom. That's I I don't know if that's a first ever, but hundred and sixty pages into the book before Bond leaves, I would be surprised if it's not the first time in all of the Bond books that we go that far before he leaves his native land. Yeah, that is true. Like it's almost halfway through the book, or more than halfway. Well, through it the is. Book. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, when when he leaves for uh, North uh-huh. Carolina, and North some Carolina? people might really like that. Some people might really like that because they've been questing after or longing for a, a non travelogue Bond, one that is more internal, one that is more about security of domestic affairs. You know, and that's cool. Like Gardner is doing something different here, like a spy um, my, procedural. My, yeah, yeah, there's a little bit more Tinker Tailor about this one, I guess. Uh, but the interagency work, I found, I found it, it was a bit too, it was a bit too stuffed. Like we've got the CIA, the SAS, MI5, MI6, super IRS, IRS, the IRS. You've got the special branch. Like everybody has got their finger in the pie here, and we know Gardner loves his interagency workings. And I wonder how much of it, Josh is insecurity um, on his part, maybe, or security, perhaps. Like, it's a safety blanket for him. He knows a lot about this stuff, so he writes it in all of his stories. Instead of just giving Bond a straight-ahead adventure against a baddie, he needs to fill it with all of these other things. I I thought that for a while, but then I also thought, hey, wait a minute, Scott. This is the 1980s Bond. This is Gardner's seventh novel now. We're, We're just coming upon License to Kill, and... The 80s Bond have got, you know, you've got the KGB, you've got the CIA, you've got MI6, you've got MI5, you've got India House or whoever, Station I. You've got right. lots of folks going on in the 80s. So maybe he's just playing to what the cinema is, is putting on the screen. I don't know. How do you feel about the inter? How do you feel about the interagency in this one? Does it bother you or do you like it? I think this is... As a Bond, as a, in a James, as terms in terms of a James Bond novel, it does feel a bit bloated in terms of the interagency dynamics, uh, the discourses that go around in the story, like and and, and the, the 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 crisscrossing, and it feels like I can see what you're saying is that it feels like Gardner is trying to give legitimacy to Bond's story by having all of these realistic aspects put in there, almost Tom Clancy-ish, I guess would be mm-hmm. the comparison that I would think yeah. of at the time, right? The Tom Clancy techno thriller mm-hmm. feel to it, have all, and the procedural feel to it. You know, we got, uh-huh. he always brings, you know, it, we have like, it begins with a floater. I mean, like every detective, like procedural, it begins with a floater. Uh, and then the investigation stems from there. And then from there we get like Scotland Yard, uh, special inspector Bailey. Then we get like, like the upper merchant class of of England involved, like with the Shrivenham. And then we have like the credit card storyline. And then we have the buildup to that though, in the first act we're getting all these pieces being thrown at us. I would I call like in the first third or the first act of the book where there's a lot of exposition, a lot of setup. But I will say though, even though Bond leaves like 160 pages, as you said, to go to, to go to the next locale, I feel in this, I feel that this book in comparison to other Gardner novels has a strong second act. Like the second act, as soon as that suicide bombing to uh, Lord Hill happens, like to me, like the t- there were stakes in this story and there were people dying and that got M energized, that got Bond energized. And then like, it just felt like there was all of a sudden stakes where, cause I had this whole thing where before they go to speak to that, um, person they captured at the safe house where he picks up where he picks up um, Harriet and then Proman and they're driving away and it just feels like oh the gang's all here they can go on another adventure and solve the I'll work together to solve the problem probably Proman's going to be a double agent or something I wasn't surprised about that mm-hmm. and then I'll, mm-hmm. and then they will go the usual course but then when when they get there uh, you know people are killed uh, Harriet's taken. And, and then Bond is dealing with the whole, you know, the whole bombings and everything going on. It just went in a direction I just didn't expect it to go. And I just felt like this gave actual stakes to the story. 
And then we get the whole scatter sequence, which I really liked. And all these were strong character moments for me in there. So in okay. terms of narrative, I really, I really like that. It's only cool. when it gets, it gets to, it goes back to the usual bond ish formula, the Gardner bond formula when they get to, to um, Hilton head Island. And from there to me, like it gets kind of like some good spots in between. Like I really like the dinner scene. It was a classic James Bond antagonizing mm. the villain sequence. Like, I enjoyed that part of the story. The whole marriage thing was ridiculous, but we'll get into that. Um, no, let's get into it right now because I think well, Scorpius's desire for Bond and Harriet to marry further complicates our ability as readers to understand okay. or or believe in in a villain that's already like hyperbolic in terms of what we're asked to think about. I mean, yeah. I guess there's a chance that like a narcissistic maniac like him might enforce a marriage to have absolute control over everything, but he knows who Bond is. And my God, does, you know, for a guy who's so well-connected and so influential, does he not read about how many villain plots Bond is spoiling? Like, does he really want him? Why him? Why does it need to be him? Is it just this narcissistic control, as I say, or is it just complete myopic naivety, stupid villain writing like I'm, I, I really disliked that part of the story. I thought it was dumb, just flat out dumb. And the fact that Gardner went to a place of Tracy, I thought was even stupider. Like that he, not that he, not that Bond's looking at her and thinking, oh, I'm going to marry Harriet Horner, and she's like just like Tracy. But Gardner's writing suggests that there's this, there's this greatness about Harriet who hasn't. <laughs> she, come on, like what? Fuck off, Gardner. You, what, you what mentioned that this done? is. Yeah, the you mentioned the first description of her. Act. She has big breasts. Like the first description yeah, well, of her, Bond noticed her big breasts, and that's basically. And she had some kind of shiny hair or something like that, and that's all we get of her. Like, well, we that's know it. we know that Bond likes her clothes in the cupboard as well. Like he checks out her brands, and he likes her brands yeah. too. So that's it. Well, right? okay. But I just yeah. feel like I, I feel like he he's lost the plot here when it comes to that third. And you say it's a third act. To me, it feels more like a book of two acts. But either way, hmm. whether we okay. structure it two or three, whether however we structure it, I agree. When we, get Hilton Head, when we get to Hilton Head, it's it's a mess in terms of this marriage thing. And then he goes and saves the president. Oh, my God. Like, I was all ready to give Scorpius as close to a five as I, as I was ever, probably, for narrative, because I was totally into it. And then when he leaves things start to go slippy and then they go really fast and slippy and then they go into the mud wrestling part of the slide where everything <laughs> is like Benny Not Hill music kind of Benny Hill either. music and like cake being thrown and it's all bullshit when he has to save the president from Ruth Perlman's you know disguise bomb and all it's, of that stuff is her terrible naff. disguise like yeah, was so it wearing I, like a must, like a mustache like a hairy hippie reporter uh, or something yes, she like was, that yeah yeah. So I, I was ready to go maybe four and a half for the narrative because I was really pleased mm-hmm. that Gardner was playing it this way. Even though there was a lot of setup, I thought the characters were well written and moving with it up to here in the narrative. I, I was happy to give it something. But the marriage thing, the Hilton Head Island, which it, all of that just – and I love that place. Like physically, environmentally, I think it's great that we're going there. But nothing really came out of it and I'm disappointed and then she just dies anyway, bitten by one of the fucking snakes. So it, it all, the air came out the balloon at the end. I went three and a half for my narrative. And most of I. that, most of, did you? Yeah, okay. I did. Well, 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 most of that's coming from good faith on the first, you know, 150 pages of the book. Yeah. But I guess it's fun. Like I can see if you just want a fun ending, you'll get it here. If you don't care and you're happy to suspend the disbelief that you've already suspended a little bit further... You, you'll be okay with this, but I wasn't willing to go to the lengths of protect the president, only Bond can pull the trigger, that type of Top Gun bullshit. Like, ugh, it just bored me at the end. Was it, per- was it Purvis and Wade who wrote Quantum of Solace? Because the way that Bond makes Scorpius take his, you know, his death walk reminded me of how he treats Dominic Green in the uh, mm-hmm. in the. In the- in the in the denouement of um, yeah, I see what quantum, you're saying. Yeah, of quantum of solace. Well, yeah, I guess so. But it's it's not as big a walk, is it? Like he shoots him in the knees, or he shoots him in one of the legs, and he forces him yeah. out, and he gets bitten and 
trampled pretty quickly. It's not quite as dramatic, I don't think, right. as uh, the quantum scene. But anyway, on to girls. I'll give you the first chat. Let's uh, let's finish up this chat. Yeah. So we have a variety of, of female characters in this story. Uh, some Do we? Potential- no, we have so- more. We have multiple girls. Do we have a variety? I'm not sure. Well, I mean, we have cute. We have. Yeah, she. No, uh, she yeah, but she. She's. We, she's an ally. She's not a girl. She, 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 she's she's an not ally. a woman anymore. She was in the first time we met her, but she's not an ally here, or she's not a woman here. She's just a yeah. character. Yeah. So I, I didn't even just, put her in my column for girls. Yeah. I respect her too much. Yeah, going back to uh, Harriet Harry Horner, who sounds like a Harry Potter character, but anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> not and not and not just because of uh, not not just because of the Harry thing. It's just it's just like the the it's the alliterative superhero name that mm-hmm. they gave her. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, she's a thin character sketch that has given some emotional agency at the compound. But again, we're talking about she's a fridged woman and not just like Tracy. Like it, it's it's basically given it's it's to kind of give false stakes because she's being killed. Oh, John Gardner will kill anybody off. And then, you know, that gives him emotional intensity to his face down, his face off with Scorpius and that whole situation mm-hmm. just to justify the death the way that it was, even though, like, I think it was Wachowski saying, like, we got to take him alive. And Bond's like, no, I'm going to avenge Harriet Tracy 2.0, who I just married. Uh, I don't know. It just kind of felt that yeah. way about her character. Like, she was meant to be, like, um, so she was meant to have presence in this narrative, but she just found, like, but like other characters that he's written before, female characters, she just comes off as disposable. Her death just to do attempt to intensify, you know, his pain, essentially. The one female character in this story that I kind of felt could have been more interesting to develop would have been Trilby Shrivenham, because I really liked the idea of her sort of playing that Santa Stark role, you know, at the compound where she's fucking terrified okay, yeah. of, of what's going yeah. on. And she's just putting up a straight mm-hmm. face because she's scared to death. I, and she has to survive. And I found her more interesting right away than, mm-hmm. than Harriet. And it would be kind of cool if they kind of played out that bond, you know, had to save, ended up working with her to escape or something like that. Or she helped Harriet and bond. I thought that would have been a cooler kind of storyline, a more interesting way to do it. But, and alas, you know, mm. she's, re- she's relegated to a good social match for Bond at, at the end. And Bond's not even interested because he's mourning Harry. Oh, because she's, yeah, exactly. Well, uh, my, well, what did you go for? Like, I'm interested. What did you go for? Oh, a generous three out of five. Okay. Right. Well, I failed the girls. I gave them a two because okay. neither one of them I found interesting. Even from the beginning, the setup with Emma Dupre and Bond on her Rolodex and then Horner and Trilby. And I mean, Trilby was like the exorcist girl until she wasn't anymore. Ruth Perlman only came in at the end and long enough yeah. to put a disguise on and try to blow up the president. And Harriet Horner, as you say, thinly sketched, easily planted there. And then the goddaughter, she became the goddaughter of the villain. Like, oh my fuck. Too much stuffing. Too much yeah. stuffing. The girls, neither one of them felt like a match for Bond. Uh, unlike the last book, which of course was ridiculous, but at least in No Deals, Mr. Bond, we had girls who were kind of up for it. You know, here, they all just seem hapless and and dumb. And um, I mean, yeah. it's funny. We, we recently did that, didn't we? We, do, we previously did a retrospective of uh, Live and Let Die with Jeff, um, the 50th anniversary, and we were talking about the role of solitaire. The girls in this are kind of as helpless as she is. I find them really, really bland. So I went to a generous three. I think you were right, sir, a generous three. Well, in terms of locales, yes, we've got little places uh, in London and the UK or the Southeast, really. But then we've got Hilton Head, which is described nicely, you know, as a golf mecca, but then you get this sort of compound within it. but that's it. Like, there's not a lot. This isn't a, a Bond book you're going to recommend to readers mm-hmm. for its travelogue. And so for that reason, I'm just right in the middle here with a three. Like, the, it, it's okay, but I didn't get excited about the compound, its descriptions, really. I didn't get too excited about any of the settings. It doesn't seem like that's what Gardner is on this time around, at least in my opinion. But maybe you saw no. it different. No, uh, I was actually even lower. I gave it a pass, two and a half. So, oh, okay. So just purely functional, nothing more. Purely functional, nothing more. Really, did you like? Nothing. Did you like the scorpions and the kind, the kind of mirrored box and the snake paths and all that stuff at the end? Did you enjoy that stuff? I just or found was it, it kind just of, gimmicky, just kind of gimmicky. It, 
it was gimmicky. Yeah, it just didn't. It just didn't yeah. fit. Like yeah. it, didn't, it didn't fit Scorpius's character. To me, like it would be more terrifying if he just just the fact that like you can escape, but good luck going through the swamp. Like that was enough. But then he had to have the scorpions afterwards as like yeah. a backup. He- <laughs> yeah it's a bit silly just, isn't it it, it seemed like just a forced <laughs> trope they wanted to put in there you know like all right like yeah when i have like the false wall fall into a pool and there's a giant squid in there you know it's not like they've done that before so <laughs> but you know it's funny like it seems like we're just brushing past this category but the truth is there wasn't really a standout location in this book for either of us it's not like we're we're trying to avoid talking about them they're just kind of bland they are functional and i went three you went two and a half i had a bit more credit for the equipment though i i thought the plastic explosives were cool i liked the the kit that he uses the idea of the avant-garde i think maybe it's a bit too convoluted with it being not just a credit card but also a computer chip and also it can screw up your banking and also it can transfer money and also it can do all these sorts of things like a bit too much but i appreciate the ambition of it there was no res- explanation. Where did he have the, the, the research team to develop this card? Like, where was That's that right. present? Zero. I'm assuming Hathaway was, was running it through the offices there. That's all I can think of. Well, um, maybe. Maybe you're right. But the idea of a smart card in 1988, I mean, Gardner is doing something clever. He's working on, you know, the, the edge yeah. of technology. So I appreciate, the, you know, that he's trying to do something there. But I wasn't really too enamored with the equipment here we've seen better from gardner was was there anything in particular that stood out to you i like the callback suitcase from from usher with love you know, <laughs> yeah, i like the idea yeah. they ha- it has the browning pistol in there it has the bomb yeah. as you said we got the aspen baton returning uh you know, <laughs> we do the- yes it's not used though only once in the book is it used only once yeah uh we got the bentley is, is back in this one we don't have the sab uh but i think my well, favorite element has been away the- for a few books now it has, yeah, that's true, now that I think about it. The Mulsang Turbo's been in for, for three books now, I think. That's right. Well, I would say that I think in terms of equipment, it's not really an equipment, it's more of a gadget or kind of an innovation. I really liked Scatter. I thought that was a cool mm. concept. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that brings that brings equipment to like three in, three out of five for me beyond the usual stuff that was not really too impressive. But I, I, I like okay, Scatter. Right. I, thought, I thought that was the, the idea of a, of a safe house how it was executed in terms of the writing, how they got there. What is scatter? Like I was curious, what is scatter? What is he doing here? And then the, the uh-huh. safe house that they're able to meet at. Like, I just found that really neat. Despite the fact that like scatter is kind of superfluous in the end, because it just, because Perlman gets bond out of there easily. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, and I guess it's a location, isn't it? Maybe, maybe that should boost the location score a bit, but it is used as a safe, safe house. It's the deepest of all covers, right? That's right. Hmm. Well, our scores here, Josh, you have got a uh, 9, 13, let's see, 3 and 3 is 6, 10. You are at a 16 for Scorpius, a 16 out of 25. And I am at a 15 and a half. So we're pretty close. <laughs> I mean, we're only a half mark away from each other. Yeah. Uh, I guess we're, we're on the same page, pun intended. So if if, if you've got a, like a plug, right, I, I would... I would maybe just say in closing, you know, that I found the story too bloated with interagency plotting and Gardner really does go big in this one. Maybe it's the 80s Bond thing, like which had huge plots for cinema, but there's not very much that's small here. All of Gardner's plots, I guess, to some extent have been massive and the villains have been like ridiculously big too. But like Colonel Sun, right? Just think about it. Even though Colonel Sun extended to large scale weapons and politics, it was a straight ahead mission. And after yes. six novels of big from Gardner, I'm kind of, I'm kind of wanting to see him do a smaller scale adventure, like one that's important, obviously, and has stakes, but one that is more like Bond versus Scaramanga deal. Do you know what I mean? Like just, just I know what you mean. Let's Bond in the field, Bond alone, instead of part of each novel is Bond alone, but there's a much bigger thing going on. I'd like a novel of just Bond alone. I think that would be cool, you know? I don't know if you've read Charlie Higson's On His Majesty's Secret Service, which was the book that came out this year, and very much uh, Bond, um, it's tied into Charles' coronation. It's a great, great book. Uh, Anyway, Higson does something cool there where it is Bond alone in the field doing something, but it, it follows Bond. And Kim Sherwood's book, Bond isn't even in it really until the end, Double or Nothing. That's a an interesting book where you're following the agents. Um, 
I'm getting tired of the the bloated interagency plotting. I guess is what I'm coming down to. And I feel. I feel you. Yeah. I. I yeah. Yeah. Still, anyway, so, I would. I would. I would say in my top three gardeners so far, this is in my top. Yeah. Three. Okay. I would, okay. Yeah, so you like. I would say, you like the allies and adversaries. You like the players as uh, enough to put it there, huh? Yeah, when it's not too convoluted, I, I like the I like the world building in this story. Gardner's has has kind of created. It's in a way maybe he's starting to find his stride, maybe just a little bit, and he's he's doing different things. So I'm hoping maybe in the next novel, the positives that I pulled from Scorpius will be more apparent in in the next novel, kind of like what it was with like with No Deals, yeah, Mister Bond, Bond, right? Yeah, yeah. That's my top three. No particular order. No deals, Mr. Bond, Scorpius, and Icebreaker. I think those are my top three gardeners so far. Yeah. Cool. Well, we are seven books now through the Gardener series. The next one up is Win, Lose, or Die. So I think what we'll do is maybe do a ranking, see where we stand after that one, huh? Yeah, we'll see how that goes. All right, cool. Well, it was good to talk to you to you about uh, Scorpius, and thanks for listening, Always. everybody. Let us know. Let us know if you... Uh, if you see it the same way we did or didn't, if you agree with Josh that the players uh, and the world building of Scorpius are worth celebrating, or if you think that, uh, like I do, maybe the interagency plotting is just getting a bit too a bit too stuffed up now. And we both thought the girls were pretty lame in this one. Um, let us know what you think. You can uh, email us at bondbynumbers3 at gmail.com or interact with us on the socials. And if you're into literature, why not check us out, Josh and myself, and our other podcast, Lighting the Pipes, which we've been doing for a long time now on uh, crime stories, mystery, novels, and detective narratives. So get yourself on over to that and uh, have some and fun with And film noir us. reviews, too. And, fil- and, fil- and film noir, too, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I'll make my exit as well. And just want to say, the name Scorpius reminds me of that classic Simpsons episode where Homer works for a Bond supervillain, uh, <laughs> Mr. Scorpio. So now I think I'm going to go watch that now, right now. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. I will too. Um, I will too. He's probably going to be a bit more engaging than this Scorpius. I don't know. We'll see. We don't have Mr. Bond. We have Mr. Bont. So. Mr. Bont. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, good work, pal. Thanks very much. Uh, take care of yourself. Take care, bye. And everyone, we'll see you back here soon. Bond by Numbers will return.